As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. When it comes to life and death issues, it's important to know what legal documents you need to have in place to make that transition easier for your surviving family members. Today, my guest is Kelly Caperton Walling, and she's here to talk about estate planning issues. She's been an estate planning attorney for over 25 years and has helped countless families prepare for that ultimate transition. She's also active in the community. She's served um, as, as general counsel for the Flower Mound Women in Business and has also served on the Louisville ISD uh, committee in charge of helping children with special needs. Kelly, I'm so happy to have you here today. Well, thank you. I appreciate your your invitation. <laughs> I wanted to start off really talking about what the basic documents are that, you know, everyone should consider having. And, and of course, we're talking about the state of Texas because right. we are in Texas. So if you kind of, kind of give us a like a, a rundown on what those documents are and what they do, that would be great. Okay. Well, there are four that are absolutely critical and those would be your will and your statutory durable power of attorney, which is also known as your financial power of attorney. And then there is also uh, the medical power of attorney. And with the medical power of attorney, you're really supposed to have a HIPAA release now so that the person you appoint as your medical agent can actually see your medical records and therefore make a better decision about what's going on with you. So let's start with a will. Why is it important to have a will? A will uh, keeps your family from fighting over what's gonna happen next. And it can keep your probate process much shorter and much less expensive. And it helps you decide how you want to position your assets before your death. And, uh, it, you can take care of a lot of things in it besides just uh, giving property away. And, and one of those things, and probably the most important thing to me, is uh, that you can provide for somebody to care for your minor children in the case that you pass away and your spouse passes away before they are of the age of 18. And if you don't do that, the court will do it for you and the court doesn't know you or your children. And it's a really hard decision to make. And we find some people avoid doing wills for that reason, but it is absolutely the most critical reason to do it. So I think one of the things that's important when we're talking about wills is to understand what happens if you die and you don't have a will in place. So you just mentioned probate. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's talk a little bit about the process that happens in the event you do have a will and in the event you don't have a will. In the event that you don't have a will, there uh, are inheritance laws in the state of Texas which provide for how your property is going to be divided among your heirs. And the rules are very uh, cut and dry. You don't get to move them around and you end up with people inheriting things that you might not think should. 
And what, um, how expensive is that process? What does that look like? I mean, obviously it involves courts when you don't have a will, right? Right, yes, it's a more expensive process when you don't have a will. Uh, and it is necessary in order to transfer a lot of different kinds of property. So people may think they don't they don't want to incur the expense of you know preparing a will, but it actually can end up being a lot more expensive uh, when there's not a will. Definitely. Do That's you handle true. probate uh, I, disputes and matters? Oh yes, I do, and I have for a very long time, and um, a lot of them are involving the heirs as opposed to the people who get property under a will um, because they don't know what the wishes are of the person who passed away. So they're more likely to fight for some part of the estate. So of course, having a will doesn't avoid um, the legal disputes. Uh, but I want to go back to just for just a moment, because I always think this is interesting. It's similar to like when we get married, there's a whole body of law that wraps around the marriage that people often aren't even aware of. And so when you die, there's a whole body of law that will wrap around. It's just it's sort of the default. So if you, you can opt out of it by having a will. But if you don't, you're under the laws of intestacy. Is that right? That's correct. And so typically, what would you expect if you, you know, uh, for where the property would go under the laws of intestacy? Well, your your spouse is going to be the first in priority, and uh, he or she would get a life estate in the home and then a partial interest in the other property. A life estate is something that uh, when that person passes away, it goes, in this case, it would go to the children then. And um, the, the children would be next in order of priority. If the children pass away, then it would be grandchildren. Uh, but there, there can always be siblings who want to fight over things, both the decedent's uh, siblings and the siblings of uh, people down the line from that. And you find a lot of, if you have a stepmother or a stepdad, you find a lot of problems with that. For example, um, there's wasting of the uh, the estate when one of the uh, the surviving spouse is in the home and he is or she is wasting it, not taking care of the things that need to be taken care of for the property, and it can uh, decrease just. Tons in in um, in value, and then when the children inherit it, um, the value has decreased so much. There's just not as much to pass around, and there's there's uh, it's very hard to do something with the step parent who is in the home. So one of the things when people come in and um, are thinking of getting remarried after there's been a divorce, um, one of the things we always talk about is how important it is to have your estate planning documents in place just to help clarify um, what's going to happen. So let's talk, we've talked a little bit about what happens when there's the intestacy, and then let's talk about when there is a will. Um, you know, Texas is a, is a fairly a cost-effective state to die in if you have a properly executed will. So very complicated if you don't have a will, but if you do have a will, let's talk about a, a little bit about how that process is streamlined and what that looks like. Okay, there there is, uh, compared to other states, a very streamlined process in Texas. We don't know how 
how lucky we are. And I'm going to chime in here because a lot of people get their information from, you know, like a TV where you hear mm-hmm. what happens in California or you hear what happens in New York and Texas is very different. So mm-hmm. what what you may be familiar with in other areas won't necessarily apply if you live in Texas. So I hate to interrupt you, but no, I just no, wanted no. to chime in that, yeah, uh, we yeah. need to emphasize that. When, when you have a will, um, all you have to do, you file it uh, in the probate court and you ask to be an executor, which means somebody who's going to distribute the estate and pay the bills and make sure everything goes to the right people. And um, if you ask in a will to be independent executor, then it's going to keep your executor from having to go to court for every decision they have to make, which is awful. And, and very expensive. And if you don't have a will, it is a dependent administration, which means the, the person does have to go get all that approval all the time. And the attorney's expenses are quite high when that happens. But if you have a will, you file the application and you really are, there are just uh, several rules about paying, finding creditors and paying off creditors, finding beneficiaries and paying off beneficiaries. And um, they're, they're really pretty, uh, pretty simple. Um, and so you have those and the, the time is, is much shorter than if you're doing inheritance uh, when somebody doesn't have a will. And um, then you only have to file one document at the end of this whole procedure. And um, it's basically just an inventory of, of what you've done. And um, generally speaking, it's only a few pages long. Um, and and uh, the person who's doing it, usually the executor, uh, gets help from uh, their lawyers in doing it. So there's nothing to be uh, fearful of in that regard. Yeah, and it just streamlines everything. So especially when you're working with a great estate planning attorney, then you can make sure somebody's helping you in the probate process, make sure the letters testamentary get issued and notices are run and all of that, but it can be wrapped up pretty efficiently. Yes. What is the usual timeline when you have an undisputed will that's been in probate? Well, I do wills all over the place from Hunt County to Tarrant County. And uh, with COVID, it has taken months in in some counties to get the stuff done. Uh, Typically, you can expect it to be done no more than three months. Um, If you've got what you need from, from your clients, uh, it usually doesn't take any longer than, than that, uh, but there are still some lag, like Denton County is still lagging a little bit uh, with, with getting them filed and set for hearing. Good, good. Um, now, there are there are some assets or there are ways to transfer out assets outside of the whole probate process. Can you talk a little bit about, about how that's done and what kind of maybe accounts can be transferred outside of probate? Yes. Um, The kinds of accounts that already have a beneficiary on them um, at the time of your passing, those are the ones that are outside of probate. And that would include your life insurance and it would include your retirement accounts like your 401k. And um, then it would also include anything with a right of survivorship on it. And that would be common with uh, checking accounts uh, where you put uh, somebody down and instead of having to go through that whole process, you just have them um, get it straight off. And those can be nice too, especially with a checking account, because if you can access some of the estate money um, fairly you know, quickly, 
then um, you know that's that can be extremely helpful. Are you allowed to use the estate funds to pay for things like funeral and the the kind of the last um, the last expenses, the final expenses for the person? Yes, you are, but it's hard to get a hold of that money. So what happens is people end up giving it, they pay, they end up paying funeral expenses and expenses of last illness. They can be reimbursed for a lot of those expenses because they're expenses of the uh, estates. Okay. But if you have a, if you have the, <clears throat> the checking account with the right of survivorship, then that can free up some funds to be able to make sure that you're not having to come out of pocket to pay. Correct. Correct. That makes sense. What should somebody think about when they're selecting an executor? I think one of the mm. things that like trips people up when they're working on their wills is, you know, all the, the people they have to designate. So, I mean, let's talk about, first of all, who, who should you select as an executor? Okay. Well, first point I want to make is that don't, ex don't select two or three of them. Select one. Uh, because that avoids all kinds of conflicts. <laughs> and I've seen co-executors before, in, uh, mainly in my um, litigation practice. Uh, but uh, somebody trustworthy, somebody who knows how to manage money, somebody who's not hated by the other family members that you have, somebody you're relatively close to, and just overall, uh, somebody who wouldn't mind doing it. <laughs> That's the big one. Do they get paid for this job? They can, but most often they do not uh, because they're, you know, they're so close to the person who passed away. Um, they're a best friend or a brother or something like that. And so, no, they don't, they don't usually take payment. Now you said don't name two, but you can certainly, and it is prudent to name successor, alternate. Absolutely. Executors. Yes. In fact, in my practice, we encourage our clients to name two successors. And we encourage that as well on our power of attorney documents, because it can be amazing how quickly they're not available to do those things for you. Right. And so, so in a will, you're going to name an executor. And then if you have children, you're going to name a guardian for the children. How does that work? And what should somebody consider in that situation? Okay. If you have children who are under the age of 18, you are going to have to appoint somebody um, to take uh, the, the place of you uh, in, in uh, managing their both their persons and their estate. So it's somebody who's going to have custody and be deciding where they go to school and where they get medical care. And then typically with a guardian, you're, you're going to have a guardian of the state who's also imagine. Uh, managing those assets as well. And so uh, a guardian, uh, there are some similarities between that and your executor. Um, you know, a guardianship, unlike an executorship, is a usually a very long-term job. And it's on a different level of commitment <laughs> and work. <laughs> you know, so um, it's, it's common for people to appoint uh, siblings for that purpose. Um, these people are going to raise your children for you and, and take care of their money for you until um, they're 18 and can do it themselves. And sometimes if you have set up a trust for those children uh, where money goes into that, then you're going to have a situation where they're managing money beyond the age of 18, maybe until the trust goes away at the age of 25. 
And so there are all sorts of things for people to consider. And one of them I would imagine is where do you want your children living? Is there, do you have a sibling or somebody you can designate in your current area? Or if not, then, you know, you're just, are they overseas or, you know, where might they be living? And of course you don't, we don't know. There's no crystal ball um, when you're making these designations, but uh, it is important to put a lot of thought into them. Definitely. And do you recommend a testamentary trust, um, a trust that arises, you know, upon death as part of the will um, for minor children? Uh, generally speaking, yes, I do. I definitely do. Do you ever see situations where it's wise maybe to have um, a guardian of the children that's separate from the trustee who's managing the assets? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've talked about a will. We've even touched on the trust. Now let's talk about the the general power of attorney or the statutory durable power of attorneys. Mm -hmm. um, what rights does that give somebody? That uh, gives people right to invest your money and sell your property and uh, collect on debts that may be owed to you and um, incur liability on your behalf. Uh, pretty much anything financially uh, that you can do, this person can do for you. Does it go into effect right away or is it something that goes into effect only upon incapacity? Like if there, were, if I was suddenly not able to make decisions, is that, would it go into effect then? Yes, it's only upon your incompetence. Okay, yeah. and who decides incompetence? A doctor. Okay. A doctor. So the doctor is actually the one who would certify yes. that um, that you were not able to make those decisions any longer. Correct. Correct. Um, now, uh, what happens if you don't have a power of attorney? If you don't have a power of attorney, you end up going uh, to court uh, to to get some kind of designation from the judge as to who can make those decisions for you. So if you go ahead and you designate, you, you avoid a lengthy, I presume, and costly legal battle um, as opposed to a guardianship, right? Is that oh, a guardianship definitely. of the person? Yes, yes, and the guardianships, guardianships, for one thing, they can take a long time. You have to have somebody on behalf of the state come and evaluate uh, the person that you're trying to bank a ward, and um, that can take alone can take forever. Uh, you, it's very costly. You have to report to the judge, uh, to the court all the time. You have to do an annual accounting, and um, lawyers who do what what I do like to say um, that you better keep all your receipts, every last one. Yeah. And because you have a lot of liability, I'm sure to the beneficiaries and to the other people who you know, will have a stake in the estate of the ward, right? Definitely. And that's, uh, that can be, I mean, that's a huge responsibility. It's a fiduciary duty and duties don't come uh, any bigger than that. So similar to the general power of attorney, which is the financial document, you mentioned the medical power of attorney. So what, what kind of decisions can somebody with a medical power of attorney make for somebody who's incapacitated? Okay, yeah. Um, again, this one's only gonna start, come into effect when you are incapacitated. And again, that will be determined by a medical doctor. Uh, and, and when they authorize uh, you to proceed in that regard, then it's going to be all your ma major medical decisions, any medical decision you would make on your own. Um, you know, whether to, to 
have blood work done, whether to, to do dialysis. I mean, it's it covers everything from the least to the greatest. And if somebody doesn't have a medical power of attorney, is that all? Would that also then necessitate a guardianship, or what happens? Yes, you go to court. So you have an opportunity to designate the person who you want to be making financial decisions for you and the person who you want to be making medical decisions in these power of attorney documents. And if you don't take advantage of that, then the court, then people will be fighting over who makes those decisions for you in right. a guardianship proceeding. That's correct. Um, now, I just sent my oldest son back to school, <laughs> off to college, <laughs> and uh, my middle son's about to turn 18. Uh -huh. So do you recommend that parents of children who are now growing up <laughs> into adulthood have these similar documents uh, prepared? Yes, I, I certainly do. In fact, I just did them for uh, one of my best friends uh, just the other day, just Friday, we finished hers up. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. It's something that nobody wants to think about. But, you know, in a moment when you have to move quickly and you have to make decisions, um, if something tragic or traumatic were to happen, having those legal documents really gives you peace of mind. Absolutely. Your child can uh, become incapacitated at any moment, as frightening as it is. And, uh, you know, once once they're 18, they have the same rights as any adult does to make any of their decisions themselves. And I see this come up a lot with children who have disabilities and they are not able to do everything they need to do for themselves and they hit 18. And there are many different options for what you can do with them that would match their level of need. But, you know, in, in that case, you can see how, how much uh, benefit they would be. Exactly. Um, and finally, you talked about uh, release, the HIPAA release. And I think if anybody um, has a doctor <laughs> and is, is getting any kind of medical treatment or care, you know, you know, when you go to the doctor's office, you have to sign all these forms acknowledging the privacy practices. And there's a lot of liability on medical doctors now if they, if they inadvertently disclose information um, outside of a release. And so, it can be very difficult to get information about your 18-year-old if you don't have a signed release. Oh, yes, and, and the school doesn't have to talk to you either. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are surprised, you know, like, what do you mean? I'm still paying all the yeah. expenses for this 18-year-old. Yeah. Um, but you have no rights of access. If That's you correct. Don't get that. Yeah. So it is important to have the HIPAA release signed as mm -hmm. a part of just you know, taking preparations to make sure that decisions can be made when they need to be made. Absolutely. What yeah. is a living will? A living will is also known as an advanced directive. And um, we don't write those as much as we write the other documents. Um, what they do is they deal with your medical care when you are terminal. And they, they help everyone decide whether you want, usually it's life-sustaining measures that they're dealing with. And so it's like a medical power of attorney, but it comes into effect at the very end of life. Um, and it, it usually deals with bigger medical decisions. So for example, if somebody's dying of cancer and they've, mm -hmm. they've, they're in hospice and they don't want to receive ongoing care anymore, this will allow the medical team to not come in with the crash cart when the heart rate stops, right? Yeah. That's correct, yes. And, and we, you know, sometimes these stories make the news because it is a, it, you know, they can be heart-wrenching 
um, stories about people who are in a vegetative state and do you have to pull life support or not. And, you know, much better to be thinking through your options and mm -hmm. making these decisions at a time when, A, you have the ability to think about them mm -hmm. <laughs> and B, when you're not in a crisis moment. Yes, we've seen uh, their usage increase in Texas over the course of my practice years. Uh, and, and I encourage them. I always suggest that people consider them and I explain what they are. Um, and I encourage you, you know, to, to look at them. Um, they, they do some, this is just, I mean, this is when people in your life are having to make the hardest decisions they are, they're making. And it can be really traumatic for them to have to make those decisions for you. And they can be um, life-changing and, and uh, permanent. Yeah. Um, so, and it's one thing when you have the gift of time, but unfortunately, you know, there isn't always the gift of time to have the conversations about what, you know, what you want to have happen in, in that moment. And so, um, you know, I just know we do a great gift for those that we leave behind when we take those extra steps. The very last thing I would talk to you about real quickly um, is something that's near and dear to my heart because I deal with it every day, and that is the effect of divorce on uh, estate planning. Uh, maybe you and your husband or your wife have worked together and had a will done um, during the happy years of your marriage, and now you're getting a divorce. What impact does the divorce have on these legal documents? Well, it does not invalidate your entire will, but it does invalidate the gifts you have made to your spouse who is soon to be your, or I guess who is no longer your spouse. And um, in addition to that, it affects, uh, it's going to make your estate roughly half the size that it was beforehand. And there can be some pretty big tax implications uh, from that. And you uh, need to revisit those issues. Uh, you're also going to have things like your life insurance and your retirement accounts. And if those are um, now have uh your your spouse ex-spouse lifted listed then you're not going to have that uh, beneficiary status anymore either the ex-spouse is removed as a beneficiary and that can leave you with no beneficiaries which is uh you know challenge can be a challenge um and it can it can prevent your giving those things to your children in trust if they're younger or not in trust and um you know, you might want those to go completely and quickly to your kids. Absolutely. And so divorce is a great time to consult with a state planning attorney and to look at redoing those designations and just to make sure everything's covered. I always think it's like an umbrella. You you take your umbrella with you and it won't rain. <laughs> of course, if you don't have your umbrella, then it does rain. And so estate planning documents are just one of those necessary things that we all need to tend to um, and really an act of love for the legacy we leave behind. I definitely believe they're an act of love. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for your time today. Uh, and we're going to include links to Kelly's contact information. If you want to follow up with her and learn more about the documents that you need uh, just to leave that legacy of love. Thank you. Thank you.